Welcome to The Sacred Everything, a podcast that asks, what would the world look like if we treated everything as sacred? I'm your host, Travis Redtail, and we will meet the pioneers proving that we can live another way with greater health and more harmony on this planet. Our conversations explore the practical ways that you can expand your consciousness, you can revive your community, and you can create circular systems in the way that you consume. Together, we are going to rebuild this world on love. So here's to a more beautiful future for humankind. Welcome, Caroline, to the Sacred Everything Podcast. How are you today? What is a, what's alive in you today? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Wow. Um, I'm just so fueled up lately and really excited about some of the things that we're working on, but just um, realizing how important it is to be an active participant and making this world a better place. And so those are the kind of things that I've been thinking about lately. I'm hearing that response ability. Yeah, your ability to respond is sort of, yeah, you're, it can be a duty or something like that. Um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to start out just by uh, connecting into some divine frequency, you know, a nice quote, a, a, um, uh, a, ground, a grounding energy for our conversation. And I know that you, you found something that you wanted to share, so let's hear it. So I love Jane Goodall. Um, it was my dream to meet her and I actually did get to meet her. She's a very, very, very nice, um, person, but, um, one of the quotes that she has that I feel like I'm very aligned with is, uh, it goes, what you do make a difference, what you do makes a difference and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. And I feel like that is true in everything that we do, the way that we decide that we want to treat each other in a business setting or in a personal setting, the types of um, events and projects and things that we give our energy to, we're deciding how a difference we're going to be making through for the through those actions. um, And what kind of difference that you feel called to make in your life, you know, and not just thinking about going throughout each day, trying to just make money or to do something selfishly, but to contribute with the experience that we have here on this earth to do something that really matters. So that's something that really inspires me. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing uh, this kind of devotion to service. How can I be of service on this planet? And um, yeah, the 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 juxtaposition of needs, in fact, like we we are in a primarily monetary driven society. There's not a lot of other values that trump money in the way that our economy and our survival systems are set up, our water, our housing, our food, our socializing, everything is monetized, everything is intermediated. So what I'm hearing you say with this quote is like a call, you know, a call to, to find a passion that, that really drives you to, to serve the broader humanity. And, and for those who are interested in astrology it's like well, this is the age of aquarius this is the age of the collective and like those children being born now are going to be more 
like more involved in the collective health and the collective good than any other generation on earth. And I know my generation and probably yours, I grew up with earth sciences and learning about dolphins and sea turtles and the rainforest. And it's like, there's just a part of me because of my early childhood education that wants to conserve, preserve and thrive myself. I want to be as vibrant and as colorful as a rainforest. I want to be as vibrant and as colorful as a coral reef, probably more like 20 years ago before they were all bleached. But um, but yeah, so that's a beautiful quote. Thanks for invoking Jane Goodall. She's one of my heroes too. Great. Yes. All right, now, now I wanna read a quote. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> I wanna read a quote. Um, Mahatma Gandhi, Mohandas K. Gandhi, you know, the leader of the, the face really of the Indian independence movement. There are people in the world so hungry that God cannot appear to them except in the form of bread. Wow. <laughs> what does that mean to you? I... I see I whether whether you're like a staunch atheist who sees like the organization of the universe as as the bigger picture or you're like a you know believer in a in a very specific religion and and there's like a specific deity that that is the organizer of all of the the magic and the beauty and the wonder in this world um if you don't have your basic needs met it's really tough to start to take care of other people and, and when I think of interacting with the divine, I think of it as a vibrant, colorful act, like going out and dancing with people or gardening, like, you know, be, being in connection with others or being in, in such a content state of contentedness that I can be still within myself and I can feel the vibrancy of all of my mitochondrial reactions in my cells and like that. And so that to me is engaging with the divine. And I can't do that if I don't have my basic needs met. I got a good job. I got an income. I got food. I got friends. I got family. You know, it's like I am really taken care of in this life and not everybody is. And so, and so if, if you are in a form of debt, whether that be an economic debt or a social or relational debt, and, and, and it's hard to, it's hard to really focus on anything but the repayment of that debt and the sustenance of your life because you don't have enough water, you don't have enough food, you don't have enough security. I mean, I think the biggest the biggest deficit that we have these days is a sense of emotional security. And mm -hmm. and so and you can have all the money in the world, but you can be completely unhappy, you know. And and so if, if we don't have that solved, the richest people can still not connect with the divine. They're still just looking for the food. So that's that's my I like that. And I wanted and I wanted to I want I found a food quote because we're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about this and and I want to be, before you start I want to just sort of introduce where all of my inquiry is coming from. Mm -hmm. We're going to meet Caroline here in in the frame that my vision as a architect and a urban planner who's been at this conservation and sustainability game for 20 years is that we can revillage the street that we live on to reduce our consumption, to increase the love and connection and the, the ways we depend on each other socially and love each other and celebrate together and live a vibrant, healthy, more walkable, more organic, more like delicious and vital life. All without, my words. I love that. 
You love that? Okay, well, that's I love it. All those a, words. <laughs> you love those words. And, and, I, and my day job is to use policy and technology to fix problems. And the more I work at my day job, the more I think that's not the only answer and it may not even be a good answer. And so I'm interviewing folks because I want them to join my social movement. I want to collect every ally on earth and make us all feel like we're marching towards the same vision of like liberating us humans from the clutches of inhumane systems and birthing parallel systems. And maybe those become the dominant systems at some point, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, so you are here honestly as, as the debut of a new type of podcast that I'm doing under the same name of um, the sacred everything, but you could ask, how can we build our world on love? How, how, how can the new world be built on love and not on, um, you know, the mon- the current monetary system, the current systems of honestly, like social treatment, even interpersonal trauma-based treatment that, that we have with each other. So I want to hand it over to you, Caroline, tell, tell me kind of how you came to do what you do. Let's start with what you do. And then I want to okay. hear the whole backstory and how you came to do it. Love that. So Basically, um, my name is Caroline, and I'm currently the Chief Operations Officer and uh, Fleet Farming Program Manager of Ideas for Us. And basically what we do um, as a 501c3 nonprofit is we develop, fund, and scale environmental solutions to solve the world's most pressing environmental problems. And a lot of those problems are related socially as well. So, you know, just like you were talking about at the beginning about how Um, we need to have our basic needs met first. And that's one of the things that I love about what we do is we help communities with where they're at, with what they need first. Um, So it's not like a cookie cutter uh, solution that we're putting on a community, but we're having leaders from those communities rise up and lead projects that help their basic needs, or they help their innovation onto that next step. So whether that is helping to plant trees that help to prevent erosion and flooding that is due to some climate related uh, events going on in an area, say Uganda, Um, or if that's creating a a farm for an orphanage in Rwanda, uh, or if that's going on to doing other things like creating um, women's uh, menstrual pad workshops for women in Nepal, trying to get further into their societies um, when there's a lot of stigmatization, negative stigmas about um, women who are menstruating being an active member of society. So there's so many different uh, environmentally related problems that communities can face. And Ideas for Us helps to create events and programs and projects um, directly with those communities to help create a better world. And um, one of those programs that we're most well known for is fleet farming. And we'll dive all into fleet farming during this conversation. But the basics of that is taking underutilized land or lawns and converting that into productive micro farms or what we call farmlets. And that creates any neighborhood, urban, suburban, into an agri-hood. And we create these edible landscapes of either row crops or fruit trees or berry bushes or whatever whatever is most appropriate for the site um, and to a system that the community is actively farming and sharing and donating and whatnot. Um, 
And the way that I got into this beautiful environmental world that I'm, I feel very privileged to be a part of, um, I basically did not know what I wanted to do with my life, as many young people do. And um, at 20 years old, I basically was riding my bike in my neighborhood, and I came across um, a lake. And at that lake, I was meditating with a friend of mine, and I felt this overwhelming sensation that my life was going to change that day. And so I continued to ride my bike and I found this forest, which was in my neighborhood, but I always kind of rode past it. Well, on that day, I decided to ride into the forest, trespassing, really. <laughs> and there was a man standing on the outside. And it turned out that that was a seven acre botanical garden run by a historic society nonprofit. And he was the caretaker in this beautiful 1880s house built by hand um, with heart pine, uh, really beautiful home. And it was being used as a museum. And he was living there in exchange for taking care of the property. Um, and so he told me that he was leaving at the end of the month and that they were looking for a new caretaker. No so, way. <laughs> So no schooling, no schooling, nothing. I convinced the nonprofit that I was the perfect choice, uh, me and my brother. Um, we were going to become caretakers. We were going to live there for free. We were going to, you know, create all these programs and uh, get to know all of these different plants that I became mesmerized by. Wow. Walking through the garden with the current caretaker, he knew every single plant. He knew the time of day that the blue jays came. He knew when the hummingbirds came, when um, the rain lilies would pop up. He had so much knowledge that was so new to me and so fascinating that I just knew I had to convince them and to get into this beautiful garden. Um, so within a week, my brother and I were moved in. Um, I was there for four years and my brother is still there to this day over 10 wow. years as caretaker wow. lucky duck and um during that time my brother and i also went to school for horticulture we got degrees together and we challenged each other to see who could get the better <laughs> grades and um and through that i was obsessed with the world of the environment and nature and these natural systems and even like the mysticism of these cycles that we have all around us when you're able to see nature so closely every day and, and notice these things, um, there's just a whole world that opens up. Um, and I care about nature so much that I wanted to figure out what's my role in horticulture that I can make a difference. Um, and I've never been a foodie. I've grew up relatively, you know, poor and I just, food wasn't a big part of my life. It was just to sustain, not to really, right. you know, uh, see on a, a high culinary level, but I learned how intrinsically connected our food systems are to our natural systems. And yeah. I learned about how many environmental and social problems are connected to the industrialized food system hmm. um, when it comes to pollution during the production, pollution during the transportation, food loss, 
you know, one truck that goes by and doesn't get the food in time to get refrigerated goes, you know, directly into the dump or whatnot and the, the sense of waste. Um, but even to the social level of the lack of farm workers' rights, um, there's a really great book about um, slavery in Florida, even in modern times through wow. um, this book called Tomato Land that talks about how people in modern day have been tricked to coming into these big food systems and their passports taken and they're expected to work on a debt. And it's just really, there's so much there. There's so much to wow. fight for. And right. it's, it's, it's connected to the environment. It's also connected to people. It's also connected to the everyday person who is going to the store and unknowingly supporting the sales from that company or whatnot um by and like anybody who's listening anybody who's listening could somehow be participating in slave labor basically just exactly. we wouldn't know we wouldn't know because we, we, we know. can't we don't have the bandwidth to track down the the human labor practices of every food producer that that is in our lives exactly and that's what these industrialized food systems we when we give our money to it unknowingly innocently give our money to it um we are supporting those systems to continue. Um, and that's why the uh, localization of our food system through farmers markets, through CSA programs, through direct farmer connections, and even supporting like bigger brands who have a local focus, like Whole Foods does have, you know, some local options and Sprouts Neighborhood Market is a great partner of us and they have right. standards. Um, and just being aware of that system can make a really big difference. And so around that time, um, I was connected to a good friend of mine who was like, oh, uh, I work for fleet farming. So again, my gregariousness, I, I wrote an email to fleet farming and I tried to set up a meeting and I'm like, I am your perfect girl. I am, I love the environment. I'm ready to learn. I just got my degree knowing that I don't know anything about growing food, but just knowing that I could learn and then I could jump yeah. in and I could make a difference. And 11 years later, I'm still working with fleet farming and I'm still, you know, I've taught myself skills to be able to lead ideas for us in a greater capacity. Wow. Caroline, what a what a cool story. What a cool story about finding yourself in the right place at the right time. Joe Joe Dispenza would be very happy with you. <laughs> all all of the uh new age hippie manifestation folks are like, see, it, it works. It's true. It does. And it does. It does. Yeah, I believe it too. Um I where do, oh, I just want to respond to you. I just want to like you, there was so much good stuff in there, and I, I just want to give a little space for it. Um, mm, yeah, so I hear a lot of synchronicity, a lot of you just kind of making some real direct, feeling your intuition and directly saying, something's going to happen today, and I'm just going to like keep walking. I'm going to do my part by keep walking, but then I'll be at the right place at the right time. So twice, the only two career moves you really had to make happened in that way. So that's, that's something that... Uh, younger version of me would, would never have believed. Um, <clears throat> I heard that you're motivated by so many different aspects of, of food system injustice, right? The, the environmental, the negative environmental impacts, the, um, um, the social impacts, probably the economic impacts. 
and and that this motivation has just driven you to continue to be a a, a, a steward of the earth. And so I'm really hearing sure. that stewardship. Yeah, like you're mixing your stewardship with your service together, and um, and doing it in pleasure. It was like it was like, oh, I'm gonna do this with my brother. I'm gonna I'm gonna like really enjoy this. You know, this isn't this this like heavy weight you're carrying around your shoulder. This is just something that says, well, naturally what's going to feel good right now. So mm-hmm. those are, those are all, uh, those, all those points resonate with me so much. And they're things I'm yeah. trying to learn. I'm trying to make mm-hmm. decisions more based on pleasure than on what I should do these days. For sure. And I think that in the environmental field, it's really easy to get caught up in the sadness and the pain and the struggle and everything that's happening negatively. But there is another side of that and seeing that there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to be involved with. And, you know, sometimes I will get connected to college students and speaking opportunities and get to talk to people about what they care about and what are you doing with your degree? Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes there seems to be apathy. There seems to be um, kind of like not a lot of understanding of what they should do. There's a lot of students out there that they have no idea what they want to focus on. And mm-hmm. for someone like me, I just feel like there's so much you know, I could get caught up in fruit trees alone and learning about them and planting them and, you know, advocating for them or all the way down to like a specific type of, you know, insect and right. how, how can we support that insect and how can we plant the, the host plants and get that. So there's just so much work to do. And um, one of the things that I love about ideas and fleet farming is that we have a very positive approach to everything that these solutions can be implemented while we're playing music and while we're friends are coming together and kind of like the mindset of a lot of permaculture groups is that, you know, your community is there to engage with you and we can do it together and we can even enjoy ourselves in the process. Right. Right. I'm, I'm hearing the, so, so the sacred, everything is founded on these three principles. It's the revival of community life the reconnection to nature and psycho-spiritual healing. And, and the thesis is that we are like all born of, you know, millennia and millennia of trauma, war and family, mm-hmm. broken family things and hurting the earth. It's all been happening for a long time. And that we, and many of us have just never released that trauma. So if you've had a grandpa who died in World War II or a family that had been suffering from sexual abuse or something like that, like the, the, the thesis behind a lot of contemporary physiological studies about the storage of trauma in the body is that we still carry that in the generations going forward. So imagine mm-hmm. that. Like I always think about the ocean, right? I, I bet the first ocean didn't have as many waves as the current ocean does. Like I like the conservation of energy yeah. means it's got to stay in there somehow. So sometimes I look at the micro ripples in the ocean and I'm like, I wonder if those are waves from like a billion yeah. years ago. Yeah. And and, uh, and I think about that with the accumulation of cultural artifacts like trauma in the body or, or music, mm-hmm. music, right? I mean, we've been developing the music that we have today is more complex probably more sophisticated in some ways and just as beautiful as the first song sung by the first people, you know, mm-hmm. hundred thousand years ago, hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. years ago. And, and so I'm hearing that 
by doing things in a tribal manner, in a community manner, you're taking the heaviness out of the work. It's not, it's not work to save the world because we have to. It's like you're actually going to find deep richness in this work by working together, by singing songs together. And in my opinion, oftentimes unlocking things that we need that we don't have in society today. Like we don't have work parties where we tra-la-la and sing. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, the first peoples were doing nothing but foraging, gathering water, and maybe hunting once a week. Like they were exactly. just sitting around processing cedar or beans and mm -hmm. singing and dancing and taking care of their children. They had nothing else to do. There is no ambition in that, right? And so I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that the way that ideas for us is architected is to create belonging. Like you're creating exactly. belonging among a group where, where maybe their lifestyle has been so commoditized that neighbors don't have a, a functional reason to belong together anymore. It's, it's, it's like somehow I'm feeling like the isolation of the suburban world of the Westernized society is, um, has taken away what Charles Eisenstein says. Like interdependence is a function of mutual obligation. It's not some woo-woo, we sing ritual songs together, and now now we're connected. It's like, I need food, you need food, and we need to work together to go get the food. And like that, yeah. that that's primordial. And we don't have that. Like the monetary exchange that we do with our time does not feed us in the way that we used to be fed as social creatures. So I'm not, the reason why I want you on this podcast, and I'm so excited for you to be here, because you guys are like doing this in the world, and you're doing it all around the world, and you're tackling social issues like, you know, shaming of having, you know, having menstrual cycles in developing mm -hmm. nations. I mean, this is like one of the, yeah, I learned about that in grad school. Um, and yeah, you think, wow. This, the cultural standards are so different everywhere mm. in the world. And yeah. to, for you guys to have a platform to basically heal a functional problem, a social problem, and the trauma of isolation that contemporary society puts us in, I, I want to, where do I sign up? How do I get right? to be part of you're ideas invited. for us? Yeah. <laughs> so you're, let's hear it. I'm invited. Thank you. Let's, let's hear about fleet farming because I, because I got this thing about every street in America being a being a village, and you're talking about an agrihood. And I want to know how does it work? Where is it being done? What scale is it happening on? So, Fleet Farming's goal is to transform the average American lawn into a productive micro farm or farmlet, like I mentioned. And the way that we do that is um, we see. Every, the everyday neighbor, neighborhood as a perfect place to grow food. Mind you, we do not grow on places that have been heavily fertilized or have used chemicals within the past two years. We do soil tests. Um, we also build up anyways in our agricultural rows. Um, and we were really mindful of contamination. But um, we have a lack of agriculturally zoned land. The way that we have our neighborhoods built through, in my opinion, very poor planning, is that a lot of the times we'll have um, a suburban neighborhood that is a cul-de-sac style planning development. And then maybe a couple miles away, you'll have a grocery store and a, you know, a couple chain places. Um, and we have such a reliance on vehicles because of the way that Bartholomew or the planners 
of certain areas like in Florida, they decided that we are going to be a, a automobile you know, environment. Uh, that's more for that than the way that villages and different developments of years pass. Um, for example, different um, places in Europe, they're more intrinsically connected to land, knowing that everybody kind of grows food together and has something. Well, times have changed, right? We have a lot of apartment complexes, we have a lot of concrete, um, but the suburban neighborhood remains and everywhere. So how do we grow food in a city like that? Well, Fleet Farming as a nonprofit, and mind you, I have not met a lot of farming nonprofits, um, a nonprofit program of ideas for us, but um, we see it as an opportunity to be the connector between these lawns and these areas of land with the greater community. So we're currently in two cities. We are in uh, Orlando, Florida, and we're in Sebastian, Florida, and soon another city. Um, we have our sights on expansion because we basically have our process down and um, dependent on funding, we can bring this to more cities. And so, for example, in Orlando, in the community of Audubon Park, uh, we, this is where fleet farming started and actually started on Chris Castro's front lawn, who is a the, uh, a leader in um, all things environmental. Uh, he's currently serving as a staff member to the Department of Energy. Um, and so we started in his little sunroom, worked there for years <laughs> until we were able to get an actual office and uh, actual funding. And um, mind you, when I started, this was in 2000, uh, was it 2014 Fleet Farming started? I started 2015, so very early on. The program had no money and uh, I myself treated it like a full-time job because I had uh, the botanical garden I was living at. I felt like I had, I was the right person to put my heart into it because I had that support system and that privilege. Right. right? Um, and that's my, you know, my whole philosophy on like responsibility. Like if you have a privilege, you kind of have a responsibility to, mm. you know, use it and to give back. But um, so we basically started to talk to homeowners and said, who wants to donate their lawn? You don't have to mow it anymore. We'll do all the work. You can get part of the harvest. Um, and we had so many people reaching out. We actually went viral during that first uh, couple months I was hired and um, we were on NBC. When, when was that? What year was that, that? I think that was summer 2015. Wow. Uh, and mind you, summer is not a great time farming wise in Florida. <laughs> So to go viral during that time and to get all these news channels reaching out to you, it was like anxiety. Like, what am I going to show these people? Sure, but right. we made it work and we had all of this press and NPR and NBC and Modern Farmer and Greenpeace and all these different uh, publications. But um, basically we saw that we had a lot of people that wanted to be a part of the program. So we were serving maybe 12 front lawns uh, into farms and we were, you know, composting and growing the food and, um, bringing that to literally by bicycle to our local market. Um, and also donating the food to food banks. So SNAP certified farmers market food donations and sharecropping with the homeowners and being able to take some home from, for staff. 
Uh, we were hmm. growing so much food. And it's such a good point that Florida should be a major food producer. We can literally grow all year long, which right. not every state can say that. Um, and we can grow staple crops like pota sweet potatoes and things that are uh, sustaining and have a little bit of shelf life. Um, so there's a lot of options for us there. But um, so our program is hyper local, which means that we're going on bicycle from lawn to lawn farming with volunteers, with interns and with a small staff. And so that's the concept of fleet farming. Um, we are we just expanded to Sebastian, Florida, with the amazing team at Chosen Retreat um, through a USDA grant. Um, and that program of fleet farming is also lawns to farms. But it, in addition, um, we're doing community gardens uh, for seniors and doing senior focused programming. So, um, which we're also doing in Orlando, but the senior focus is that branch's main focus um, because it's in a community that has a lot of elderly people, a lot of people who want to contribute, they want to give back. Um, and like you said earlier about um, healing, it's really healing, in my opinion, to be able to have, um, find purpose and service. And mm being able to share something tangible like food in that process with their yeah. community. What a treat. So. Wow. Yeah. I'm hearing uh, the intergenerational part is really important for me. I've been living in eco villages for the last two or three years and so much of the, the social dynamic that comes with intergenerational is, is calming to my system. Like I'm 37. Mm -hmm. I want kids around. I want elders mm -hmm. around. I want, you know, I want teenagers around. Like I, it, it, it feels like the, like society is healthy, you know, when you have yeah. such a diversity. So what a treat. All right. I want to, I want to just take in all the stuff that you shared because it's so much and it's so, gosh, I want to. Oh, I have block. more too. I know you do. <laughs> I just, I want to, you know, it's like, this is what I like to do. I like to make all this space so everybody can soak it in. Right. Okay. Wow. I want everybody who's listening just to like close your eyes. Not if you're driving, just close your eyes and imagine your street, you know, imagine waking up and walking out your front door or your back door. And it's like a spring day and there's wildflowers growing everywhere and, and the crops are brilliant and you're able to, what, can, what are you picking spring? What's coming out? What oh, kind of food? And spring. Um, probably by that time, um, we're also, we're harvesting our tomatoes. We have our fresh greens. We have Swiss chard. Um, we have, uh, so much radishes, turnips, carrots, um, broccoli, maybe garlic. Wow. So, so many we different got, we types got a, of plants and fruits. We also have fruit trees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have breakfast fruits and we have salads and we got soup materials. Like you walk out your front door and there's this abundant, verdant Eden that some folks have helped, have come to your property and you didn't really do much unless you wanted to. Can So if I'm a homeowner and I sign up for this, can I help? Can I plant? Can of I course, of course. You're not okay. required to, but we would love the help. And actually one of our homeowners he has been with us for forever. His name's Gary. And he used to be a, uh, a tomato grower. 
Um, he had his whole life, he's obsessed with tomatoes and every year he helps us to grow them on his farm. Uh, and we've learned so much from him, from that knowledge being passed down. And um, it, we've seen our crops get better and better because of what he's you know, taught us through the years. Yeah. So, okay. So we're, we're, we're all still in the meditation, right? We're like, we're walking out our front door and we're, we like see these, see these, these kale and these radishes and all these things coming over. We think, oh, I can pick that and eat that tonight. I could pick it and I could share it with somebody on my street. I walk down and the next yard has a little something different in it. What if I'm what if I'm walking down this sidewalk and I see some I don't have tomatoes but my neighbor has tomatoes. Do I do I feel like I can pick a tomato? Yeah. Really? When we're growing so abundantly, there's enough for everyone. Mm, my, my there's a song leader, the sort of the progenitor of the circle singing movement. His name's Lawrence Cole and he has a song that goes When one has when one has, when one has, everyone has. <laughs> and yeah, I want to live in that world, Caroline. I want to live in that world. And, and you know, I live in a, um, I live in a co-housing community. So we have terraces. Nobody can drive to their homes. It's all sidewalks. In between the homes is beautiful. I have these greens where all the multi-generational families, children have grown up here and they have children now. And, and um, when I walk by the terraces and I see a tomato and I'm hungry and it's like, it's like kissed by the sun. It's warm. It's still warm from the sun. And I eat it. It's like the first time I've ever eaten a vegetable in my entire life. You know, it's like the stuff that I get at the store has nothing on anything fresh from here. And, and, you know, I've, I've been in all these different community settings where they grow maybe just lettuce, maybe they grow just one thing or two, but that connection to nature is something it, it transcends the functionality of the food, right? I think it's a really spiritual, um, what is it? It's, it, it is a transcendental thing that says I am of the earth. The earth is giving to me and it is a reminder of what the first people knew. You know, the first people knew this because they were foragers and they were, they were gatherers and hunters. Um, the Kalahari people, the Bushmen of the Kalahari bush. Do you, do you know about the San people? Mm-mm. You don't know about them. This is a, um, this is a hunter gatherer tribe that lives today in the Southern area of the continent of Africa. There's like Botswana down to the North of South Africa and they have been in continuous hunting and gathering occupation of this land for 40,000 years. Wow. And and they have got a whole bunch of crap going on because of land rights and game preserves and it's not it's not a friendly world to people who are living in the old ways but we can look at them. And in 40,000 years what the anthropologists say is that they have never stored a single tuber a single grain of bean that they've picked off of a bush, an, a single jerky link from an animal. 40,000 years because they believe in the providence of nature, that the abundance wow. is just going to be there. Why would I store it? It's been there for 30, 000, 40,000 years. It's just going to be there mm-hmm. again. 
And, and as we've densified cities, right, we've increased density, that acts, the access to foraging and, and connection with the abundance of nature, we need to reverse engineer it now because we, mm-hmm. so many of us know that it's true. We feel, we rather know as in know in the mind, but we don't feel it. And until it's felt, mm-hmm. it's like, you have to have faith. You have to have trust in it. It's like, I don't, I don't want to believe anything in this world. I just want to know. And when I walk mm-hmm. out to the terraces and I eat that vine ripe tomato, I know, like, I know I can get food and maybe, maybe I could have a lower paying job. Maybe, I, you know, it's like, I like all these possibilities open up when I feel like I'm going to be taken care of. So I'm hearing that you give that gift to people. I'm hearing that one of the biggest, there's, there's this really functional thing that people get to eat food and that some people get to take some food to the market and take it home. You're reducing the amount of pesticides and the mm-hmm. probably changing the dynamics of the water consumption and the soil retention there but you're giving a spiritual transformation to the people who live on this block to re-believe in the abundance of nature. Exactly. I feel like it. There, it's a big difference when you can go outside and at least eat one wild thing or one grown thing that's out of that food system that we currently sustain ourselves off of. And in the neighborhoods that we serve, there's just another level of like, vibrancy and life when you see people that are tending to the soil in your area and you can have conversations with passing neighbors and even people who are feeling lonely and feeling isolated they can come outside and they could see us and they can join in if they want and they can have that sense of community because we live such separate lives we all you know a lot of us work online A lot of us are just inside staring at a TV and it makes sense because when you look at a lot of environments, we don't have groups like us that are giving that opportunity to people often. Um, I've actually rarely seen it um, in public spaces or, you know, even in like urban environments where people have, have that. I think a good example actually is like a little free library. Um, that's a good example of a homeowner that understands that they're part of a community and they want to give back and they want to say, you're actually welcome to come here and I can share something with you and having that and having community gardens and even just having fruit trees that are along walking paths, um, or pollinator gardens that have flowers for your neighbors to enjoy. Um, these allow for people to be able to feel more safe and connected to the areas around them. Beautiful. The revillaging of our lives and you guys are doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm just like, so actually the, one of the founders, Chris Castro, I was on a webinar with him two months ago. We had the, the folks who hosted it at city age, they had recommended him and he came on and he's, he seems brilliant. And, and for for y'all to take it from the concept of we need more integral connection in our communities. And we know that we pretty much accomplish that through solving problems, not, not by some ethereal thing, which is, you know, I'm living in Asheville and we like to do a lot of ritual here. We like to do a lot of singing in circles and dancing together. And and that works for us because we crave that, but most people just want want a tomato. You know, <laughs> maybe not not ready 
for something as as deep of a connection in the village as the celebratory parts. Like it's hard to celebrate with strangers. It's really vulnerable to sing a song mm-hmm. with strangers. It's really vulnerable to dance with strangers. It's not as vulnerable to grow food on your front lawn and then slowly walk down the street and say, man, I want a pear. Can I have a pear? Mm-hmm. You know, and that, and that mm-hmm. Char- Charles Eisenstein's quote is like, that. that's the mutual obligation that we start to form and that's interbeing. So, wow. So you guys are a platform for interbeing. Have you ever called yourself that? I've never heard of interbeing. What do you mean by that? So, so it's the state of being in interdependence, right? Interdependence is that, you know, I need your strength to help me do this thing, to raise a barn, to build a house. Interdependence is I can't haul the water without you. Interdependence is very simple, basic stuff. Yet it's it's a social aspect. Interdependence is I'm a social creature. I'm a human. I get super lonely if there's not people around me. So my mm-hmm. my even if all my material needs are met, if my social needs aren't met, I might be one of the four Americans that are on psychological uh, psychiatric medication right now. Right? I mean, we mm-hmm. think about the evolution of our society getting more and more isolated since basically the advent of the car, the development of the suburbs, the invention of refrigeration, and boom, you got a nation of suburbs with nuclear Mm -hmm. families that are supposed to carry the weight of everything, providing for themselves, providing for each other socially, economically, uh, entertainment-wise. And and that, that to me, is, is the trend we're trying to unwind right now. And so interbeing is waking up and saying, I am as much part of the trees as I am my family, as I am my neighbor's lives. And and I think it's easy for folks these days to go out in nature and be like, yeah, I'm one with nature. And it's easy to be home and have your kids jumping all over you and say, yeah, I'm one with my family. But you look out at the neighbor and that Mm -hmm. that staunch independence, that American brand of independence, because our brand of independence is not the same as the French Revolution brand of independence. That was the sacrifice of the individual for the collective. The American independence is sacrifice of the individual for the individual. You know, Mm -hmm. independence is, is 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 a very different connotation depending on where you are in the world. And since we've bred it into our urban planning and our way of life and jobs that keep us in cubicles or behind, you know, cash registers and stuff that we don't have deep working together, building something together connection throughout the day. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by programs like yours that are birthing this sense. Like it's bridging that middle space. I'm one with nature. I'm one with my family, but can I care Mm -hmm. as much about my neighbor? Like if my neighbor is having a really crappy emotional day, I don't know them very well, but they look like they need to cry, right? How many Mm -hmm. Americans or anybody on earth has the vulnerability and the safety to be like, I'll, I'll take as much time as it needs. You can cry on my shoulder two hours, whatever. I got it. Like we're not engineered like that right now, but I think we can be. And so for me, that's what the end state of interbeing would look like is that we have the time we have almost as much of our material resources taken care of so that we can be humane to each other again, you know? And um, yeah. And so I, I see this very practical approach as a thing that is like a, a transformative medicine for the way that our world could be. And uh, yeah. What, what else do you want to share, Caroline? What yeah, else do you want to share? Well, on that thought, you know, it just makes me think of like how like almost awkward we've become 
with each other and the people around us that our defenses are so, you know, high um, that having that vulnerability is really hard for us. Um, not because I, I think that people are intrinsically good. I just am an optimist. I think that we are. But um, I think that we just don't have a lot of spaces that the everyday person could come to and feel like they're a part of something and, you know, like a drum circle or whatnot. A lot of communities don't have that. So what we like to do at Ideas for Us and with Fleet Farming is have community events that are, you know, instead of a community member just going to a bar to find community, which I don't even necessarily like to do that, but they get to come out in the sunshine, plant some trees, get to know the people around you, listen to music. And at the end of it, we've accomplished something together. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the people around us. So what Ideas for Us is doing, the specific types of projects, we're doing um, massive mangrove plantings around Tampa Bay, um, we're working on funding and different projects. We're doing dune restoration um, on our coastlines with different sea grasses and sea grapes and plants that help to make our coast more resilient. We're doing garden installations. We've done over 45 school gardens in Central Florida. Um, the initial installation, as well as ongoing education and support and maintenance, um, and supporting those school systems as those uh, places of community that we can really positively impact. Mm. Um, we're doing so many other things like uh, trainings related to green jobs. So helping people to get connected to jobs in the solar industry and education to be able to get there. Um, and likewise for urban agriculture, we've done a number of urban agriculture trainings that were such good vibes. Like honestly, like, my favorite things we've ever done because just bringing together people that they want so bad to have this new world that I fell in love with as their new world. And they want to have a lifelong career in growing food and urban agriculture and related floriculture and whatever their thing is. Um, and being able to learn from farmers, uh, like I'll shout out one of my favorite groups is Meacham Urban Farms. They do such a great job and their training was amazing. Um, and then just doing, you know, on a micro level events that help the communities like pollinator gardens to help beautify areas of our city that have been neglected. And, um, I could go on and on and on. We just have so many different projects, um, like fleet farming that are taking areas that may not have been the best and making them into something really beautiful and that connects the environment and animals and people together. So um, we have a lot to do, but we, we're already, you know, doing so much that uh, it's good to also take a step and to appreciate within ourselves that um, experience that people have when they come to our events. So we want to get as much done as possible, but at the same time, we want it to be a really good um, quality experience for people to enjoy themselves and you know be a part of everything uh and that's one thing that makes us kind of different too is um especially with urban agriculture there's not a lot of volunteering a lot of farmers they don't really want you on their farms unless you're trained and, and whatnot but um a lot of what we do is a learning opportunity and educational so yeah, we might have someone accidentally weed the wrong thing, but it's a, a time for people to learn and uh, to be a part of it is really important. 
I'm laughing because I've lived in an eco village where there was a huge row about weeding because because somebody had yeah. weeded medicinal plants and somebody was going to make tinctures yep. out of them. It was like their livelihood, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not laughing at that person. It's just we weeding. We, yeah, weeding can be a big deal. I oh man, I'm hearing pleasure. I'm just hearing that like that fleet farming is going to prioritize pleasure as much as it prioritizes productivity, right? Because it's two parts mm -hmm. of the the brain, right? The left brain wants yeah. the color and the touch and the connection and, and the right brain wants it to work, you know, wants it to feel good and feel productive. You know what I'm interested in too is like I'm in this environmental world and I can be directly involved with things that make me feel really good. I think that it's interesting to take those same understandings and put that on any job like any job that you have even if you're going to an office and you're going to a place that you don't like and you're working at a cubicle and there's no windows around you in your office which is the experience of one of my friends um and just asking you know how can we apply those same ideas in a not ideal situation like, I don't think that everybody can get into the environmental world, even though I would love that. I think you'd have a great, great time in the environmental sector, but not everybody <laughs> can do that, right? We need people in all these other different important jobs and careers, but remembering that, you know, we're part of the solution, even just in the way that we interact with each other, that we have the opportunity to be able to communicate in a peaceful way and be understanding and forgiving in a peaceful way. And to help, you know, create an environment that is comfortable for people, you know, like uh, people have a lot of anxieties and a lot of depression and a lot of like challenges already. And some spaces, it might seem like it's not able to change, but just to maybe remember that no matter where you are and what you do, you can have a positive impact on the people and the places around you by having more of a, you know, of a good intention to improve things. Hmm. Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm hearing nonviolent communication. I'm hearing like, how do, how do we, yeah, how do, how do we take this idea, even if it's not connected to saving the earth necessarily or storing the earth and bring the same principles of collaboration of, of that, like this needs to both be pleasurable and and uh what did i say productive you know like that mm -hmm. that's very satisfying for a human that's very satisfying for contemporary human for sure um mm, yeah how do we do that i i'm gonna use this moment as a shameless plug for the course that i developed and I, you have, i've never told you about this so i'll just tell you about it but um it's called empowering revolutionary leaders how to live simply and change the world and we actually start with mindfulness and meditation and learning sort of philosophy around why the patterns of violence and the patterns of consumption are the way they are today. And so I've spelled that out into sort of like five main roots. And the punchline is basically that if you meditate, you know, there's proof, there's scientific proof that you can reduce the reactivity of your amygdala, right? And the amygdala is the stress center of the brain. It's called amygdala hijacking whenever your fight or flight response takes over any of your, um, your, your, I think it's your prefrontal or your frontal cortex logicking that happens. Like you get hijacked by the stress part of your brain all the time. Like mm. 
your kids doing something and you think they're going to fall, a, a car cuts you off. But there's so many micro stimuli in the world. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I believe that we're getting way more triggered than we would have if we were the first peoples. And it was like just me in the forest and my kin, you know. Um, so we go through that and then we learn nonviolent communication immediately, which is basically that if you don't have a bedrock of conflict, peaceful conflict resolution tools, these are not like, these are skills you can learn and a way to express yourself in a, in, in a language that doesn't judge other people. For example, um, I feel attacked right now. You know, Caroline, let's say Caroline says something mean. I say, I feel attacked right now. What we do is we relearn how to say that because attacked is not a feeling. It is a judgment masquerading in a feeling word. And so I feel hmm, tense. I guess I feel uneasy because my need for safety isn't being met. Right. It's like, I'm not telling you that you attacked me because you probably didn't mean to attack me. I'm just saying what I feel. And so anyway, we learn this skill and we, we, we build it up to a point where folks that live in communities, because this is, this is why I put it in the course in all the communities that I've lived in, the only way that they stick together is if they learn conflict resolution upfront. It's the only glue. And so when I'm thinking about fleet farming, I'm like, how could the citizens take this over? Right. I mean, we, we should we should scale this so big that it becomes common tabletop knowledge how to have an agrihood, right? I mean, that's the goal, right? And in one generation, everything's going to be an agrihood and we won't need the nonprofit anymore. Um, that's I like to obsolete myself. That's my job in this life is to obsolete myself. And um, be, because because people love it because they can't get enough of it. And so to do that, they need training, like literal training and peaceful conflict resolution. Almost everybody does because we, because our English language is engineered to, to judge. Basically the way that we express our emotions is engineered to judge. I feel attacked. I feel um, disregarded. I feel this. None of those are feeling words. You know, we never actually go to the feeling of feeling uneasy mm -hmm. or feeling that thing. So, so then, then we go into technologies of, saving the planet, which is like fleet farming. And we talk about library boxes on the street, right? But my theory is like the people can't grab this and do it themselves until we have mm -hmm. a more sophisticated way of communicating what's going on inside of us, especially during conflict. Totally. totally. And I, I totally think that I'm very aligned with everything that you just said. I feel like there's a lot of problems that happen around assumptions. So, and, and sometimes in conflict, it just goes straight to that assumption. That's like, you hate me, or you did this to me, or you're just trying to destroy me or whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's, it's going straight to the, you know, to the jugular instead of kind of asking or sharing, like you said, like, I feel this way because this happened in my perspective or, or whatnot to have that communication. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest tools in our tool belt. Um, in organizing, especially in, or environmental organizing, but um, just to have really good communication, you know, mm -hmm. so people want to have agency. They want to feel like they're, they're part of something. They don't want to be blindsided. They don't want to like, you know, what if I didn't even ask the neighbor about, um, you know, planting this one thing or taking something out, just having that communication. And it's not always easy um, to think ahead and to say, okay, well, 
maybe they would have a problem if I didn't, you know, if I didn't address this or if I didn't ask first or, you know, maybe this person's having a really bad day and that's why this thing happened. Let me just connect with them first. And like having that communication is something that we're not taught. Like even, right. you know, through parenting, I think our parents do the best that they can, hopefully. And um, we learn everything else on our own, but having, you know, courses like what you just talked about and kind of getting those basic skills and uh, those tools in our tool belt to be able to better communicate and to be able to foresee problems and fix them, hopefully before they even happen. That's <laughs> a lot of the, the management planning that I do um, is around uh, crisis of aversion, you know, before before things happen. Not mitigation. Yeah. <laughs> but it's always going to happen. <laughs> it's always going to happen. Well, Caroline, <laughs> I, 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 we went there. We went there with, yeah, what it really takes because I, I, I really, I honor the work that y'all are doing. And I want to also just push, right. And be like, when it gets so big and everybody's trying to do this, there's still the root problem of be, it's tough to collaborate in this world. We just don't have the skills. So thanks for going there. Thanks for seeing that. I mean, have you have you found moments where there's conflict in the way that fleet farming is happening? And and how did it look? And how do you think it could have gone differently? Or how did it go? Yeah, so great question. Um, I don't think that we've had conflict in people in farming land that people don't want us to farm. That, that was the easy part. Like, across the board, people just don't want to mow their lawns. So that that was easy. We, we are, always have more than enough people who want to be part of our program. Um, I think the hard part of what we do is the physical labor in Florida with our rising temperatures and like the physical, physically demanding aspects of what we do. You know, right. um, you have a headache, but you have to harvest all this and then you have to do that. And it's there's just so much in these these systems that you have to be on top of all at the same time, but with knowledge and with tools, it becomes easier. Um, but interpersonally, um, we have had, you know, struggles like every nonprofit and program does. And, you know, sometimes people feeling like they're not being heard or they are, you know, wanting to have more control and very human understandable things that happen and when you're working as a collective, um, you need to have the voice of everyone. And right. instead of like, at least with us, instead of like a business where you're very like top down and like, you're going to do this. And because I said so kind of thing, um, working in the space that we do, it has to be very bottom up and very communicative. And like, what does the community want and how do they want that expressed? And here's data though, here's some data. So here's some options for you sure. so you can help to make that decision. But um, it's not always easy working so collaboratively with everyone around you. Like, like you said, there's gonna be problems. There's gonna be somebody who didn't ask or who didn't let you know, or you know, mostly everything in my opinion, besides the environmental factors is associated around communication. Sure. Uh, and having people understand uh, what their options are or what's going to happen and um, being able to give each other the time to set the stage. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hearing that 
I'm hearing that you uh, you work really collaboratively with the communities and and you bring in um, data points and you you bring in a roadmap and some guard posts, some some goal posts around what what success could look like, but you also give a lot of agency around the design choices and and how probably how often people are walking around your yard and you know comfort like you really you're really listening so that people can come be comfortable with with a new paradigm and, mm-hmm. and what a, what an important thing right first of all you'd never be successful if you didn't listen um but also mm-hmm. the, the all these changes right like me living in a community where i can't drive to my home you know, I had to choose that. Nobody, no, very few people in America would choose that. I have to walk, I only have to walk 400 feet, but doing that in the middle of winter with some groceries might seem mm-hmm. like a task. And for me, it's awesome. I get to see five people on the walk home, you know, um, mm-hmm. for, for you having, having a new thing with people that have probably lived in their homes for decades. And now this thing changes. It's like, that's my safety zone. Don't, mess with my safety zone mm-hmm. yet I know we want to change so I'm going to let you mess with my safety zone a little bit but but keep it safe and uh, to me that sounds like the root of the type of issues that you deal with you know it comes mm-hmm. down to that comes down to a sense of safety and a sense of security um mm-hmm. there's a quote that I wanted it's it's not a quote actually it's about lawns and so can i read can i read can i read this lawn thing so as an urban planner and as somebody who's done consulting around climate change and sustainability for my whole career um i calculate things for my own uh purposes sometimes and i calculated the productivity of a quarter acre uh garden like a, a heavily heavily guard, uh, flourishing, abundant quarter acre garden. And if you look at the homesteaders handbook, you can get so much food that it could be almost 70% of your diet can come from a quarter acre garden for, for a household. And if you look at the amount of lawn space in the U S there's about, there's about a half acre per home across the entire U S which means some, some places have a lot more, some, some places have less, especially in urban areas, but I got really curious about lawns because it seems to be the problem, but it's also the solution. Like our car dependent society makes us the highest consuming culture on earth, North America. That's the problem. But how mm-hmm. could that be the solution, right? The solution yeah. is that we could provide for ourselves. So I, was, I here, here's what the internet says about lawns. Today, American lawns occupy some 30 to 40 million acres of land. Lawnmowers to maintain them account for some 5% of the nation's air pollution, probably more in urban areas. Each year, more than 17 million gallons of fuel are spilled during the refilling of lawn and garden equipment, more than the oil of that of the Exxon Valdez spill. Homeowners spend billions of dollars and typically use 10 times the amount of pesticides and fertilizer per acre on their lawns than uh, the chemicals used in industrial agricultural applications. They run off and they become a major source of water pollution. And as somebody who grew up in Florida that drinks from a well and put ant killer all across our, our lawn, I'm thinking, wow, I was probably, if, if there wasn't enough natural filtration down to the aquifer, I was drinking ant killer growing up, you know, like. Water soluble. Like, 
water soluble. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're doing it to ourselves. No wonder a mental health crisis and chronic disease crisis, you know, this is, this is a real thing. So I'm, that's my fact brain. You said you bring the data. I'm bringing the data. It's like, yeah. This is a solution to much more than food because it's not going to oh, be our sure. only food solution, right? This is a solution to community, which is this mm-hmm. huge deficit that we have. The national deficit is not four trillion; it's four hundred million people without community, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and into our environmental pollution from lawn care. So, if, to me, it's like such a reason mm-hmm. for folks that want to be outside; they want to get involved. Just start it. Do you do you have a roadmap or something? If if they're not in your fleet farming area, is there mm-hmm. a community organizing starter pack that somebody can grab somewhere? We do have a toolkit for that. Yes, and I would just say if you like the concept of fleet farming and you want to start a fleet farming type program in your area, please reach out to us because I've talked to so many different people, uh, encouraging them to do a program just like us in their own area that's specific to where you live because um you know the abundance mindset there needs to be so many different fleet farming programs because we have so many acres of lawn in america and i love those statistics that you shared i'll also share the epa reported that 30 to 60 percent of a city's fresh water goes to watering lawns which is such a crime to me um such an Mm -hmm. unnecessary crime you know we have we forgot why we even have lawns. We don't really need them as status symbols anymore. We need them to either be zero scaped in certain environments, or we need it to be wild and wild plants in other environments um, to be able to have our, our in Florida, our aquifer be recharged through having a, a natural, you know, landscape. Uh, and we, we, in Florida, we're on limestone. And underneath our limestone is that ancient river that is our Florida aquifer. And just imagining that beautiful, pristine water being pumped up and, you know, mixed with chemicals to go on our lawn. That's just such a atrocity to me. Uh, So unnecessary. Um, And I'll also mention, so not, not just helping to reduce pesticides, fertilizers, insecticides, help uh, reduce the water that we're using through our localized food systems, um, helping to provide healthier food that's more affordable to communities without the same amount of transportation that, you know, is giving off CO2 into our environment. Like there's so many different reasons. Um, And I'll say, whereas uh, there are the average age of the American farmer is 58 years old. So we have a dying generation of farmers. So what are we going to do um, if we don't localize our food systems and get young people like a lot of the staff and the community around fleet farming interested in growing food, then we have a really big problem on our hands. These conglomerates are just going to not to get negative, but it's the truth. The conglomerates are going to be um, absorbing all of these generational farms um, where these farmers are living in a debt from the last year constantly. And mm-hmm. their family doesn't want to take on that debt. They don't want to continue the process. They want to go get a tech job at a new city. So right. we're going to be forced more and more to go into these localized food systems. So you might not see, you you might be like, I don't even know how to grow anything. But even if you start with just growing your own herbs at home and 
even stop using chemicals just off the bat stop using chemicals mulch your garden if you don't want it to be super weedy you know you can do cardboard and mulch if that works for you but mm -hmm. just having that mindset and that responsibility the word pops up again to do something uh a part of that bigger image is really important now more than ever amen amen i love that yeah i love that sister yeah <laughs> i'm i'm feeling stoked i'm feeling like i, I mean my, my roommate and i were already planning what's going on in the terraces we have we probably have a quarter acre of space for the 24 units in my development and it's wow. terraced and we're going to take over the whole thing next spring we're yes. just going to ham on it you know so I'm, so much I'm, fun i'm stoked um Caroline, what a what a delightful. See, you 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 were keeping it really positive the whole time, and then I brought in all the the destructive facts, and your fire came out. Your Kali came out. We mm -hmm. got to do this, you know. We, mm -hmm. we got, and it's practical. And I, these are the kind of change makers that I want to work with. Right? Are the ones that are solutions oriented and understand that people are just doing the best they can to meet their needs every day. You know, nobody mm -hmm. is trying to destroy the planet. I don't think anybody, no matter how evil somebody might paint a high ranking person in a polluting industry, like I, I just don't think that they're evil and they're trying to do bad stuff. I just think they're trying to get their needs yeah. met and provide for their mm -hmm. family and have good entertainment and have fun experiences in their life, you know? And, and it sounds like, sounds like fleet farming is the solution for that, where we wouldn't have to go to a far flung vacation. We could get our needs met and feel super happy going to bed and maybe not desire so much from the outside, mm -hmm. but we have it within. So I want to, I want to be part yeah. of fleet farming one day. I want uh, anybody who's interested to find you. So where do they find you? So you can find us at www.fleetfarming.org. Um, we're also at fleet farming, F L E E T F A R M I N G on Instagram and on Facebook and Twitter and, and all of the different platforms. And please give us a follow, give us some likes. And um, if you are inspired by anything that we shared and you want to start something like us, or you want to get involved with some of our other programs like our tree plantings or mangrove plantings at Ideas, um, you can also uh, check out ideasforus.org. And we have contact boxes on both websites. Um, that's ideasforus.org. Um, and we'd love to have a conversation with you. Excellent. Well, I hope, I hope, um, we help each other in, in sharing, sharing these good words about, about how we can build a better future together and read in my mind, just reclaim some humanity in our lives in so many ways. We and I want to end with, yeah, we need that. I want to end with a quote <clears throat> from Robin Wall Kimmerer from Braiding Sweetgrass. We need acts of restoration, not only for polluted waters and degraded lands, but also for our relationship to the world. We need to restore honor to the way that we live so that when we walk through the world, we don't have to avert our eyes in shame so that we can hold our heads up high and receive the respectful acknowledgement of the rest of the earth's beings. I love that idea of walking, walking out and the, so the deep the deer being like, I see you, you're, you're trying to help. You're doing a good job. And the, and the, and the bees being like, yeah, Travis, good job with that pollinator garden. You know, thanks. Like <laughs> we're working to, do you like the honey? 
I like the pollinator garden, you know, this yeah. reciprocity. So Caroline, mm-hmm. thank you for, for helping me open my heart to feel more reciprocity in this world and, and feel like uh, we all have tangible things that we can do that'll heal much more than our planet, but our relationships with each other and ourselves. Thank you so much for this experience. And I'm all fired up and feeling so good and ready to get into all of these things that we talked about. Great. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. If you liked what you heard and you're inspired to rebuild this world on love, go to travisredtail.com and check out my latest course offerings, sign up for the newsletter, read a blog post. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Sacred Everything and at Travis Redtail because I believe our everyday actions reinforce the systems that we've inherited and we can choose to meet our needs simply and rebuild this world together. So here is to a brighter and more beautiful and more vibrant future for humankind on this planet Earth. So let's get caught while it's pouring. We can't share monsoon.